1: Will you ever get another big mortgage if you have to prove you can afford it? Will you see your pension get smaller if it's index linked to the CPI rather than the RPI? And will you get a windfall if private equity investors do a deal with your building society? Answers to all of these questions to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent. I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Steve Lodge. Hello. And Tanya Poli, Hey. And our special studio guest, John Lawson, Head of Pensions Policy at Standard Life. Hello. So Let's start with the money news. This week, the Financial Services Authority announced new rules for mortgages, which will require banks and building societies to verify a borrower's income for all mortgage applications, carry out a household budget affordability test, and limit the use of interest-only loans with no repayment vehicle. The proposals follow a review of the market that found almost half of the home loans provided between 2007 and the start of this year had not required any proof of earnings. These so called self certification mortgages will now be banned, and borrowers with a poor credit record may be required to prove that they have an income buffer before they can get a loan. Tanya, who do you think is going to be most affected by these new measures?
2: I think it's fair to say it's probably largely going to be those um, people who are self-employed, especially those who've recently become self-employed, and although, also those um, with kind of a bit of impaired credit history. Um, it doesn't. It's not really going to affect the kind of wealthy end of the market because most of the FSA's measures are really based about affordability. They kind of want to protect the vulnerable who have over the kind of the peak of the house and boom they 've kind of overextended themselves and actually got mortgages that they can't afford um it 's not really about targeting the wealthy because you know they largely actually can afford those mortgages that they 've gone for and
1: I suppose that uh, those seeking larger mortgages who are wealthy individuals um will tend to go to lenders uh, like private banks for example who already do a lot of these checks anyway
2: yeah um private banks actually are a lot more rigorous in terms of testing affordability um that's partly because um they tend to cherry pick their clients they often want to know like everything about their assets, like what how, what income they get, just so that they actually know, you know, apart from mortgage, what else they can actually provide for them in terms of investments and, you know, pensions and all that sort of stuff. So they actually tend to know their client, like, very thoroughly, and it's very much done on a kind of individual process, which, in contrast, like high street lenders don't tend to do that. Obviously, um, they were the main providers of self-cert loans and also fast-track loans. Um, there has been a bit of a debate about whether fast-track loans are actually seen to be that detrimental because... Um, fast-track tend to be for customers who are kind of deemed lower risk by lenders and um, they're the ones who probably have lower ltvs or kind of a higher credit score
1: this is a, this is a, a quite a key difference isn't it yes because self-certification just means that you can't prove your income yep. but fast-track means that you've generally got so much income that you can just be waved through on a nod and a wink
2: yeah and usually the borrowers is actually unaware that um they are the ones that have been like, selected for fast track. It's the lender itself who decides actually, we don't really need to have any more documentation from them because we don't really think they are high risk. And even with the FSA's research and the CML. Um, they've actually said that um, fast-track loans don't really have like a bad kind of arrears record because and they actually tend to perform better than even income verified loans so I think there's a bit of debate in the industry with um kind of you know CML and other industry groups about whether actually they should also um, be subject to this income verification because it also is likely to cr- increase the cost of um you know the loan process and also kind of delay take it make it make it a kind of a longer process for um borrowers
1: so there, there may be well as you say more debate on the possible reprieve for certain types of fast track
2: yes i mean we've got to remember that actually this is still a consultation paper um the fsa has said that i think people have until up to november or september or november time to actually sort of submit their you know further discussion points about it so it might not still all happen actually with what the proposal that stated currently
1: just finally what might the knock-on effects be in the housing market even if People further up the the chain can still get a mortgage. If those further down are struggling, if they're mm-hmm. self-employed and they don't don't have enough you know, record of their earnings or their accounts, uh, and they can't move, um, are we going to see people getting stuck in their in their homes?
2: Yeah, there's going to be a couple of problems really. We're going to see obviously um, these so-called mortgage prisoners and um, people who won't really be able to refinance or sort of move house. Um, we're also going to see um, basically supply sort of outstrip demand really. Um, so that will in effect actually sort of depress house prices further we're not going to kind of see the house price growth we have seen over the last decade or so um, so it could cause further problems for even sort of you know wealthy borrowers.
1: So no more easy credits and no more rapidly rising prices at least for the time being. Tanya thank you very much indeed and for more on how the new mortgage rules will affect your ability to remortgage or move house look out for Tanya's article in FT Money with this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, could a private equity deal shake up your local building society and make you some money? First though, pensions. At the very end of last week, the government let slip that the change in the index linking of public sector and state pensions, as announced in last month's emergency budget, would also be applied to private sector pensions. So now, 12 million members of final salary pension schemes face the prospect of having their pension increased in line with the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, rather than the historically faster rising Retail Price Index, or RPI, and therefore... Getting a smaller pension, advisers have calculated that this could reduce pension income by as much as fifteen percent over a long time period, and suggest that employees need to make some extra investments. John, uh, you've looked at these uh, proposals in in some detail. How serious do you think this is in terms of the effect on someone's pension?
3: Yeah, I think it, I think it could reduce someone's pension. Uh, over time if CPI is less than RPI. Although CPI in the past, you know, if you, you look back to when, when CPI was first published about 20 years ago, it lags RPI by, by about three quarters of 1% each year. So over time that could eat, eat into your pension. Now that's not to say that CPI will be less than RPI in the future. You know, it depends upon what's the, in the baskets of goods and services within CPI and RPI in the future. Um, you know, how, how that how that pans out. Um, but, as things stand it, it looks like good news for employers and pension schemes because these have been largely underfunded for a, for a number of years these these final salary schemes, and employers have been thrown large amounts of money into them. This allows them to reduce their liabilities quite markedly, probably by about 10% or across the whole UK by about £100 billion. So it's a a big, big saving for employers. So I would expect pension schemes to go ahead with this.
1: I I suppose that's quite a key point, isn't it? Um, uh, Some people have pointed out that uh, there's no requirement for a pension scheme to switch to CPI uprating the pension. They can carry on uprating with RPI if they want, or even more.
3: But the point is they're going to want to go with CPI because it's better for them, isn't it? Absolutely. I think, I think it would be difficult as well to operate both RPI and CPI within the same pension scheme because some years RPI would be higher than CPI and vice versa. Um, and, and therefore you'd have to offer the, offer really the best of both in, in, in some, some circumstances. So yes, I would expect schemes, about 60% of pension schemes um, have no rule condition that forces them to use RPI at the moment. So I would expect them to switch almost automatically. The other 40%, have RPI embedded in the rules, but that's not to say that they can't change the rules as well. There might be some negotiation with employees and perhaps unions, but uh, over time, I would expect most pension schemes to move to CPI. So, if we assume that
1: most pension schemes do, how much money are we talking about? You know, a, a pensioner potentially uh, losing <clears throat> or seeing their pension come down by? Have you crunched any of the numbers?
3: Yeah, I mean, take take someone at age sixty who who's entitled to a pension. Of fifty thousand pounds from one of these final salary schemes, over ten years, um, the, the reduced pension would add up to about three thousand nine hundred pounds. So, so by age seventy, they're, they're, they're um, you know nearly four hundred pounds, three hundred pounds a month worse off. Now, to 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 replace that amount of income, um, they'd have to save up a, a lump sum of about seventy five thousand pounds. So, if people do want to to replace the lost income, uh, you know from a lower rate of indexation then the answer really is to, to, to save up extra extra money and buy a pension at a later date. Now, um, to keep maximum flexibility, you could save in an ISA. That would allow you to, to to spend that money more freely than if you invest it in a pension. But remember that pensions are probably a, a, a bit more pa- tax efficient than an ISA. I suppose
1: one other thing that people need to uh, consider is that um, this is not just pensions in payment, i.e. from once you've retired that are going to be affected by this inc- are- CPI increase. I'm getting it wrong, even, uh, but it's uh, those pensions that you leave behind at former em- employers when you change jobs because they they stay
3: there. Deferred pensions and they're going Correct, to be yeah. increased by a lower rate as well. That's right. I mean, there's there's two situations where deferred pensions um, might be reduced to 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 the CPI. Uh, the first first example is where you've left your employer. Uh, the second example is in in these career average salary schemes that replaced final salary schemes, Uh, every year in one of these schemes you earn a benefit and that's indexed towards retirement, currently RPI, up to a cap of 2.5%. That could be replaced with CPI, so even people who remain active members of these average salary schemes might end up worse off.
4: John, isn't this just another example of how people can't rely on... um, pensions which they assumed were secure. I mean, with these ones you're saying maybe they'll be uprated in line with a low rate of inflation. It reminds me, frankly, of you know, the inability to rely on the state to provide a pension and have they'll increase it. And similarly there are set with profit providers to deliver a return as well. I mean it seems to me to yet again underline the attractions of the more transparent money purchase approach where people take on the investment risk they make the money and they know exactly what they're going to get subject to changing investment returns and interest rates.
3: Yes absolutely a defined benefit pension is really just a promise from your employer and I guess if we go back you know even 15 years there was no mandatory indexation at all so your um, your your pension could have been flat for the, for the the whole of your retirement. Um, so these were protections the government put in place to make sure that that people's income steadily rose. And and they can take these away. Yeah, they take these protections away. Obviously, these protections have been costing employers and final salary schemes too much money. Um, so I think we need to, to for for these schemes we need to strike a reasonable balance. But as you say, a lot of people prefer the ownership of their own fund these days and and the ability to to control that and have the flexibility to use it as they see fit. Very good point Uh, and uh, if you'd like to know more about taking control
1: of your pension or how these uh, changes to uh, index linking will affect you um, you can read our online Q&A on all aspects of pension planning uh, and uh, we'll see FT readers having their own questions answered by visiting ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, building societies. On Monday, the 180,000 savers and borrowers with the Kent Reliance Building Society woke up to discover that the US private equity giant, JC Flowers, was planning to bolster their capital by investing £50 million into a joint venture with the mutual. If the deal comes off, it will be the first time that a private equity house has invested in a UK mutual lender. Kent Reliance would stay as a mutual as part of any tie-up with JC Flowers, and members would be asked to vote to approve the deal. No windfalls would be on offer, although the joint venture could eventually yield a payout for members if it were to prove successful. Um, Steve, there are a lot of ifs when we talk about this uh, possible J T Flowers Kent reliance tie-up. Um, what's the latest you're hearing about it?
4: Well, yes, Matthew. As I mean, as we talk on Thursday afternoon, we still don't know whether it's going to go ahead um i'm told that the um the society and the private equity house are waiting for approval from the fsa but the fsa is getting much stricter about these sorts of things you know improving these structures and so on and as you rightly said this is an innovative structure it would involve turning a building society into something called an industrial and provenance society which some society some listers may think They've heard of it. It sounds almost like a bur- burial society. Sounds very old-fashioned, too. It does. Um, that just enables the capital structure to work, so kind of ignore that. It still remains mutual in a way, but what you do get is a, a joint venture bank as well, so you'd end up with the society still being having the majority stake, but this extra capital coming in um, to create this... Banking outfits. The key attraction for the society is it bolsters its capital. All the things that have uh, that stop banks operating, and that all, and, and and what regulators would like banks to boost. Um, Kemp Reliance doesn't have very much of it, so it's capital constrained at the moment. Some would say capital problems. So a
1: deal like this, if if it were to um, go ahead, would be good news members of Kent Reliance and presumably any other small building society that's
4: you know, that's got concerns over its capital? Well, it makes for a stronger society, yes. Um, you know, it's more likely to be around. Um, it's more likely to be able to lend. So that's, that's the theory as well. Um, Kent Reliance has been very big in the Channel Islands, of course. But part of this whole plan is, I mean... Big American private equity houses aren't really interested in small building societies in the UK. Um, But what they do see here is a potential consolidation opportunity. There are still 50 building societies out there, and it thinks by launching this structure, it could effectively add to it with other medium-sized building societies. You know, all those smaller regional names that people will know in their locality but don't necessarily see advertised in big national newspapers. So if this sort of
1: consolidation were to take place we could potentially have members of more than one uh, regional building society uh, see their societies as part of a joint venture structure,
4: but they wouldn't get
1: any kind of windfall at that point, would they?
4: Well, that seems to be the the approach or the the suggested approach at the moment, that they wouldn't get a windfall up front. But private equity players, they're looking to make big returns. They're not philanthropic about this. They're looking to make big returns quickly and exit. They're not long-term holders of businesses typically. So they would be looking to exit maybe as little as three, four years down the line, having almost tripled their money. That would be their underlying aim here. Um, and at that point, the best way of exiting would be to sell the entire business, either to a trade sale to another company, another bank, or indeed a flotation on the stock market. And at that point, members, of course, would have to be offered something to give up their interest. Well, they have to be offered anything, of course, but you would like to think that members would get some payout then because yes that they they would be owning half of the the joint venture yes And, and they have the right to vote and and vote against this
1: and so just finally i mean regardless of whether this deal goes ahead do you see 50 small building societies still being around in five years time
4: no absolutely not i mean we've already lost about 10 in the credit crisis since the beginning of the credit crisis there is a general long-run consolidation. Some of these building sizes are absolutely tiny. They've got one branch and half a dozen people. Um, you know, the chief executive has to make the tea in most of these places. So the, um, they will, we will continue to see consolidation and there will continue to be innovative solutions. As you rightly said, this would be the first private equity deal, but it's not the first private equity uh, approach to a building society. The Chelsea last year was approached by um, JC Flowers as well. So even if this deal were not to go ahead, you can expect others to go ahead. Um, but the real question for Mems, of course, is, well, if if they're prepared to inject some capital invest in these societies effectively, why can't I have my money now?
1: Exactly. A question so. a number of people will be asking, regardless of whether this deal goes through, and I'm sure there'll be Uh, more approaches in the future thanks very much for that steve and for more on the smaller building societies that may be involved in future deals have a look at steve's article in this saturday's ft money section that's all for this week's ft money show remember you will find weekday news updates and all of these stories on our website ft.com forward slash money and if you have a question about any of our articles or anything in this podcast or any aspects of your personal finances that you just like some guidance on you can email us We will answer all of your questions or ask financial experts to do so on the reader's question page of FT Money. The service is free of charge and anonymous. Just send your questions to money at ft.com. We'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. So until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Steve, Tanya and our special guest, John Lawson from Standard Life.
3: Goodbye. Goodbye.